Nice singing, everybody. Wow, you guys sounded great. Welcome once again. My name is Alan. And if you were guaranteed uh, as part of a bribe that you were going to meet somebody cute here this morning. <laughs> hi there. That's uh, 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 kind of lower the bar there. If you're disappointed, hopefully, you know, that person will take you out for lunch and that'll all kind of cover it. But um, uh, we are in a series Uh, something new uh, because there's a lot of new and exciting things that are happening for us as a church, uh, not the least of which is uh, the new building. And uh, this week they actually painted some of the inside walls, the final color, and so that's pretty exciting. Can't wait for you guys all to be able to see uh, in more detail your new church. Uh, It's exciting how that's coming along. And so because of these new exciting things this year, uh, many new exciting things, our whole theme for this year is it's time for something new, looking at the number of ways in Scripture that God invites us into something new or describes something new that he wants us to uh, encounter and experience. I wasn't here last Sunday because my son, just a few weeks ago, my oldest son turned 16, <laughs> and, uh, and for his birthday, I gave him some hiking boots and a backpack and, uh, and a promise to go uh, to the Grand Canyon. So we did that last weekend. Uh, we went down and out uh, on Saturday. Uh, it, was a, it was a great uh, experience. Uh, on the way down, way down the Grand Canyon is always easy, always easy. It's just, you know, gravity works, and so you just keep on going. And, and, and I would say, you want, you want to stop? And he'd say, no, do you want to stop? i said, no, no, I don't want to stop. And, and so we kept on going. We made it down and, and back up in eight hours, uh, boom, with very little, uh, very little stopping. The way up, uh, there was a few stops when I would be uh, over, you know, wheezing, <laughs> trying to catch my breath. And while I was doing one of those wheezing breaks, a woman came by. She was on her way down, and she said one of the most offensive things you could ever say to a man. She said, you'll never believe this. She said, are you okay, sir? (laughs) She called me sir. And I said, no, I just need a little bit more brain in my oxygen, and I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But we had a great, 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 fantastic time. It was a weekend of going into the Grand Canyon as a boy and coming out as a man. And my son had a good time too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was a good time, good time. Uh, today, uh, this is uh, what we call Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And so we're, we are entering into this week that is, a, that is a celebration and a movement towards this, this uh, world-changing event that we call Easter. And so uh, during this holy week, it would have been on the Thursday night, Jesus gathered for the last time with his disciples, the last time before his crucifixion, he gathered and he redefined the Passover meal. And he took the cup, and in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, he says, the cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Jesus uses this phrase, new covenant. That's what we're going to be talking about here uh, today. The something new that we're looking at is a new covenant. This phrase would have been familiar to the disciples gathered around the table on that, on that evening because hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah spoke about a new covenant that would one day come. And here Jesus gathers with his disciples and says, it's happening now. 
What I want to do is I want to jump back into the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, and I want to read that prophecy uh, from, uh, from chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, and as I do that, would you please uh, stand again? I know you were just uh, standing, but in reverence to the Word of God and the, the, these verses that we're going to take a look at today, I ask that you would stand. I'm going to read beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. That's the north and the south. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father in heaven, we... I'm thankful for these words, thankful for the prophecy that was set up that would one day be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. God, here as we enter into Holy Week, as we pause here in this moment and in these next few minutes, God, I pray that you would help us to to encounter you in a new way, to experience this idea of a new covenant in a new way. God, we give you access to our hearts and our minds, and we are thankful that you are here in this room. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Please be, please be seated. So this prophecy begins, verse 31, once again. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So what is a covenant? That's a word that we're less familiar with than than other agreements that people have with one another. A covenant officially, technically, is an agreement between two or more parties that is bound by an oath. It It is bound by an oath. And in the ancient world, there's a phrase around the concept of covenant that you would cut a covenant. That's, that's how a covenant would happen. The, the verb connected with that word is the word cut. You would cut a covenant. What that meant literally is, uh, again, in the ancient world, there were a lot of animal sacrifices, something that uh, doesn't make sense to many of us here in the modern Western world. But what they would do with a, with a covenant is you would cut animals and you would separate the bloody pieces of the animals and separate, make two lines and to create a path. And in between that path, the symbolism is if we stay on our path together, if we stay on track, then everything will go fine with us. Everything will go fine with you. But as soon as you veer off the path, you, you break the covenant, you go outside of that, may it be to you as it was to that animal that was sacrificed on the side. That's the intensity of a covenant. And it's a way bigger deal than a contract. We're familiar with the concept of a contract. This is an agreement between two or more people that is bound by law. And a contract is a very important document, and we use them uh, multiple times. But a contract, often without, uh, without a moral problem, a contract can be broken. You can look at the contract and say, you know, I can, I can pay my way out of it, or I can say to a consultant, uh, I no longer want your services, I'll pay for what you've already done, and I will break the contract and we'll move forward. 
You can say to somebody who's fixing your bathroom, uh, things are not going well, you're taking too long, I'm going to break the contract and I'm going to find somebody else to do it, I'll pay you for what you've done, etc. You can break the contract and it's not a, a morally questionable thing to do. Uh, uh, if you, you know, It's possible to break a contract that way. A contract is bound by law, whereas a covenant is bound by blood. They're two different things. So when you look at the most intimate of human relationships, the marriage between a man and a woman, is that a contract or is it a covenant? Did you know that in Arizona we have something called a covenant marriage? that the state legally recognizes something called a covenant marriage. There's only three states that recognize a covenant marriage. Arizona, Arkansas, or is, that, is that how you did I pronounce it? Uh, and Louisiana. Well, those are the three states that recognize a covenant marriage. And what this means, a covenant marriage, uh, as I understand it, is that it's required to have a premarital journey before you enter into the covenant marriage, and it has to be a, a state-recognized premarital experience, of which Mountain Park is one of those. Mountain Park does offer one of those premarital experiences. And then once you're married, it is more difficult to get a divorce, that you have to go through counseling and go through a process in order to, uh, before you can legally get divorced. And your divorce needs to have grounds for divorce. It can't just be for whatever reason you want. It's a covenant marriage. Guess what the percentage of marriages in Arizona, one of the three states that, that does covenant marriages, what's the percentage of marriages in Arizona that are covenant marriages? Less than 1%. Closer to zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's between 0.25 and 1% of marriages. Now, maybe people don't know about it, but, but it's, a, it's, an, it's, an up, it's an upgrade from a contract because for most of us, a marriage is, is viewed as a contract, that if you don't bring me flowers anymore, if you don't write songs for me anymore, if you don't uh, clean up your socks or the dishes or whatever, if you don't make me happy anymore, then our contract is null and void, and I'm going to move on to somebody who will do that. You've heard of the, the prenuptial agreement? The only reason we've heard of that. The only reason I've heard of that is because of movies and television. I mean, I've never known an actual person who's, who's signed one of those. And maybe some of you have done it, and there's different circumstances. And, but, uh, but, but there is this thing called a prenuptial agreement. You sign it, and it mostly has to do with property uh, of the people involved. I can't imagine initiating the conversation that says, I want to have a prenuptial. I can't, I can't even imagine where or how you would do that. Honey, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Just in case, would you mind just taking a look at this document? I just can't imagine how you would work that into the conversation. But there is this thing called a prenuptial agreement, and it is a contract. That's what it is. It's a contract. Many of our marriages are contracts, but a marriage is supposed to go to this new level, this other level of a covenant. That's what the marriage connection is supposed to be. Now, again, these disciples were very familiar with the covenant language, with the power of the bond between God and his people outlined through the Old Testament journey, when Jesus said to them, I have come to bring a new, uh, my blood is a new covenant. So Jeremiah says that one day there would be this covenant. And then in verse 32, he says, it will not be like the covenant I have made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand 
to lead them out of Egypt. So there's this thing of the old covenant, the original covenant that God made with his people. And the original covenant is a, a list of do's and don'ts. It is a, a, um, uh, a guidelines for how to do life. They are the Ten Commandments, but they're more than the Ten Commandments. There are hundreds of these laws and precepts and, and commandments that are outlined in Scripture. This is how God, who made us, understands us and says, if you, if you eat this way and if you interact with one another this way and you ex- have exchange of goods in this way, then this is how you can live a happy and healthy and productive life. God outlines this in the Old Covenant. And... Uh, and the people respond by saying, yes, yes, Lord. There are multiple times in the Old Testament where the response of people, which would be the same as how you would respond to God, just to say, I'll do whatever you ask. Whatever you say, I'll do it. And their ultimate actions are the same as our ultimate actions towards God. Despite our desires to do everything God asks, we slip up, we make mistakes. They couldn't sustain it. They couldn't keep the old covenant that God made with them. They broke my covenant, he says in the second half of this verse. Though I was a husband to them, back up, back up, back up. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. They had desire, a great desire to to, uh, keep this old covenant going, but they couldn't. No one could do it, not even one. Paul talks about in the New Testament, he says, not even one could make this happen. Now, let me just pause for a very important question. I want to I throw out a question to you. As you look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as we've outlined so far, why did God even have a period of time with the Old Covenant? Why in God's grand master plan was there an Old Testament? Was there an Old Covenant journey? If God's plan is to redeem the world, um, to, to have connection with his people, Why didn't God initiate the whole plan with the new covenant? Why didn't God come in from the start with Jesus and the life-changing message of Jesus from the very beginning? Why have the Old Testament journey? That's a very important question, and I have an answer to it. But I'm not going to give it to you today. I'm going to talk about that at Easter next week. Oh, see, that's going to get you and your friends there. Edge of your seat right there, right there. Edge of your seat. I am. I want to address uh, next week at Easter this grand plan of, of why this flow was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But today, specifically, I want to just look at this new covenant that Jesus introduced, that his cup, the, uh, this cup represents the new covenant. So what is this new covenant? Verse 33 He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The old covenant was literally written in stone. The Ten Commandments were carved into the stone tablets. And as I said, there are multiple hundreds of other uh, laws and writings that they, they wrote on, on different types of things. But it was literally written in stone. The new covenant is written instead on our hearts. And what that means is, is that it's, God is much more interested in what's happening inside here than he is 
in our do's and our don'ts. That the new covenant is this transition from, from management of what you do and don't do to what's happening inside here. To draw an, a connection or an illustration with that, when I was first managing people. So a number of years ago in Cincinnati, and the first time I had a team of people that somebody was foolish enough to have me be the leader of back in Cincinnati. Uh, uh, It was a great, great team of people. But there was one person that I was struggling with, and, um, and I went to my boss, my mentor, the person who was managing me, and I was processing this with the person who was managing me. And he, he was directing me and saying, Alan, as a manager, you can't manage someone's attitude. All you can do is manage their behavior. And so he walked this all out with me. And just the general idea is you can't shape what someone thinks or how someone feels or the attitude that they bring to work every day. You can't shape that. You can't manage that as a boss. All you can do is manage the behavior, what the outcomes of that are, how they respond in an email, how, what they say, what uh, you know, things that they're working on. You can't manage attitude. You can only manage behavior, which is very frustrating as a manager because if, if you've led people and, and such, you know that what, val- what is most important is the attitude. What's most important is the heart it's, that's more important than the actual product, yet the thing you can't manage is the heart. The only thing you can manage is the actual product, the outcomes. Just think about how frustrating this is from God's perspective. God, who is the commander-in-chief, the king of all kings, the one who over, over everything, that God set up the old covenant, which was a list of do's and don'ts, and it's important, and it's a management of behaviors. Do these things, don't do these things, and God set this up. It's important. It's an important part of the Old Testament journey. But what he really cares about, ultimately, is the new covenant. What he ultimately cares about is what's happening inside here. That the management of the behaviors, that's a secondary issue to your heart, to your attitude, to what's going on inside. That God has so much more for us than just managing our behavior. Just one more illustration on this. For any of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about with this. Because with young kids, it is about management of behavior. And it's, it's with little ones and such in a number of different ways. It is about uh, uh, do's and don'ts and saying you can't go here, you can't do this. But what we most care about is the heart, is the attitude. And so it's this, as a parent, it's this, it's this um, balancing and wrestling with management of behavior. And, and what we care about truly is the attitude, is the heart, is what's going on underneath. So for, for example, in the Fuller home right now, what we are working on and have been for quite some time, it's an ongoing issue and I know it is for many of you, is, is screen time. It's just how much the screens, whether it is TV or computers or, or phones, how much they take over our lives and how much we as parents do behavioral management versus, uh, versus shaping an attitude about it. And so, particularly with the younger ones, we have a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, particularly with the younger ones, it's still an issue of, 
of do's and don'ts, of behavioral management, just like many other parental things. So we have, uh, we say midweek, uh, uh, school days, it's 60 minutes of screen time, whether it's TV or, or uh, computer games or uh, interacting on your phone or whatever, 60 minutes, and you got to log your time. So we have a piece of paper, and you have a date there, and you say, uh, here's how much time I did doing this, and you pencil it down so that we're looking at you and say, hey, it looks like you're doing well. I don't care about the numbers. I don't care about the log. I'm not going to keep that stuff and put it in a, in a desk and look at it 10 years from now because I really care about exactly how many minutes they're, they're putting on that. All of that is about, is about some do's and don'ts because what I really care about is their heart. What I really care about is their attitude. What I really care about is, 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 um, is our family realizing that real people standing in front of us are more important than virtual people on the other end of the phone. That real action and doing real things are more important than virtual action on a screen. And that's the attitude piece. That's what I'm ultimately getting after. And the pathway to that is trying to work through and manage behavior. So our, our oldest, 16-year-old, uh, we, we just kind of negotiated and talked with him about being able to do uh, Snapchat. And so the first one to experiment with Snapchat and, and such in our family, and, and I just don't get it. I don't get Snapchat. They, multiple times a day, they send blurry pictures of their foreheads to one another. And I, I, don't, I don't quite get it. I, don't need to, I know there's more to it than that. But you see, I, I'm, not, I'm not as concerned, the older they get, I'm not as concerned about the, the, the behavior, the, the actual minutes and such. What, what, what I'm concerned about the most, what I care about the most, is the heart, is the attitude, is the character behind it all. This is a huge issue in terms of discipleship. Now, discipleship is this big, fancy church word that, that means um, our development as followers of Christ that Jesus had his 12 disciples and their journey was to follow Christ and learn from him. And so for us as followers of Christ, our journey is to follow him and learn from him. And so on this journey of discipleship, what so often happens in the modern American church is that we do sin management. That discipleship is about, is about focusing on sin. Here are the things you're doing wrong. Here's how you can do them differently. Here's how you can uh, read this book or do this thing or write this thing down so that you can, you can change or make an adjustment to your sin. It's taking the sins, our brokenness, and just trying to twist them and adjust them and move this one over here and replace it with this. It's sin management when there is a much bigger picture going on there that it's, it's not all about the behavior, it's about something in behind the behavior, what's going on in your heart? Because, because Jeremiah prophesied that, that the, 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 you know, God said through Jeremiah, the new covenant is written on your heart. It's not written in stones. It's, not, it's no longer a list of do's and don'ts. It's written on your heart. John Eldridge is, is the author of a book some years ago called Wild at Heart, and he talks about the importance of, of releasing the heart, of finding out what God has written on the heart. And when he talks about uh, the, the, the old covenant and the new covenant and such, uh, John Eldridge refers to that what's written on our heart as our glory, that that thing that God has written on your heart is your glory glory. It's your purpose. It's your calling. It's what you have been breathed life into for. 
So that it's, it's, it's what I like to call your role in God's story, that we talk often about here about realizing your role in God's story. This whole Bible thing is not just some story that's so separate from us. It's a story that we are part of, and God has a role for you to play in that story. And this, this glory that's inside of us, it has been attacked our whole lives. From day one, the enemy wants to take you out at your glory. It says, uh, the enemy is not that concerned about your behavior and what you do on the surface. The enemy is most concerned about what's written on your heart because that's where the new covenant is. That's what the enemy goes after. And so that's why those things that we've heard, who are you? Who are you to think you could do that? Who are you to think you could take a position like that? You have, you have already, it's this lie that sometimes we believe, you've already um, excused yourself from that pathway because of the brokenness and sin that you've experienced in your life. You don't have what it takes. You can't make that happen. You are not capable. Those are attacks on our glory. So what happens is when we meet someone, when we struggle with someone at work, when we fight with someone at home, we are not encountering their glory. We are encountering their wound, their brokenness, their, their sin management, this piece on the front. The part that you don't like, that ugly part, that's the sin part on the front. That's not their glory. There's this beautiful thing in behind that that is the purpose that God put them here for. What we fight against and what we don't like about one another is this, this, this wound that we see on the outside. When you look at yourself, do you see your sin or do you see your glory? When you look in the mirror, do you see your brokenness, your imperfection, the many ways that you fall short? Or do you look past that and see what God has written on your heart? Do you see the glory, the purpose that God has made you for, despite your imperfections and your brokenness and the mistakes you made last night? Equally important, when you look at somebody else, whether it's your spouse or your child or somebody significant in your life, do you see their sin their brokenness. You look at them and you see what's broken about them, what they did recently, what they did to you. Do you see their wound or do you see beyond that to the glory that's written on their hearts? Huge difference, huge difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. So Jesus gathers with his disciples, knowing that they are very familiar with this concept of the new covenant. And he picks up the cup, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. Up until that moment, up until that moment in history that we read in Luke chapter 22, all the followers of God knew about was the old covenant. They knew someday there would be a new covenant, but all they knew about was the old covenant, was this list of do's and don'ts. That's all they knew about. And Jesus, in this moment here, he introduces through this story, this holy week journey of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, through this journey that we call Easter that we celebrate next Sunday, through all of that, 
Jesus introduces a new covenant in his blood. We are no longer bound by law. We are bound by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to take communion here today as we head into our holy week. In just a few moments, the ushers are going to come down and they're going to distribute the elements for us to participate in. And today, just like any other time when we have the opportunity for communion, we have two options. We can say no thanks or we can say yes, please. That the new covenant is available to everyone. In verse 33, uh, God says through Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's not just some people, not just the good people, not, the, not just the people who believe a certain thing. That is, that is the covenant God makes with everybody. And we have the choice, every, every one of us, we have the choice of saying, no thanks. No thanks. I, I don't believe that, that the new covenant came through Jesus. I don't need that. I can function fine on my own. Or we can say, yes, please. I remember the sacrifice of Jesus. I, I take the, the bread and the cup, I take it inside me as a reminder that the glory is written on my, in my heart. It's no longer a list of do's and don'ts. What God is interested in what's going on on the inside, what's written on your heart. As the ushers come down, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, as we prepare to uh, take communion, as we prepare to move into this holy week, we are thankful that you have invited us to the table. And God, I pray in these next few moments that we would just envision that we are sitting around the table with you. Jesus, you have reached out with the cup and said, this represents the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. God, help us to understand that the new covenant goes beyond a list of do's and don'ts. It goes into you writing something beautiful on our hearts. And in these next few moments, God, I pray that you'd help us to not just see our sin and our brokenness, but that you would help us to see our glory, what you've made us for. In Christ's name we pray, amen.